Welcome to Champions of Care, a Champion Chair podcast and your go-to resource for industry-leading insights regarding medical seating and their applications. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Champions of Care, a Champion Chair podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. And folks, thanks so much for joining us on another episode of the podcast. Make sure that you're subscribing on Apple Podcasts and Spotify as you're listening along today. And if you like what you hear and want to listen to previous episodes, you can also go to our website at championchair.com. Again, championchair.com for more content as well as more information about our solutions and services. So on today's episode of the podcast, we're exploring the growing trend of healthcare design metrics as more technologies like AI have given designers more tools to be data-driven. We want to ask the questions, how has this access to data led to visualizing and designing healthcare spaces, specifically treatment spaces, as more than just a space to get something done and more as a space for healing? For insights, we're joined by the team at BSA Life Structures, a company whose whole mission is integrating data into the design process to make progressive and sustainable structures that focus on healing, learning, and discovery. I'm pleased to welcome our two guests for the day, Jen Worley, Director of Design Research, and Karen Tobin, Senior Interior Designer, both with BSA Life Structures. Jen, Karen, great to have you both on. How y'all doing? Good. Happy to be here. Yes, thank you. Absolutely. Pleasure getting to chat today. Looking forward to breaking this down and uh, getting your experienced thoughts on how design metrics are impacting treatment spaces today. So let's start by better understanding this mission of BSA Life Structures and how it's benefited the structures that you've built over the years. So BSA has been around since the mid-70s, a nice storied company at this point, living up to that same mission of creating inspired solutions that improve lives. How have you seen BSA's mission adapt over the years as well as stay the same? Yes. So as you mentioned, uh, BSA was started in 1975 when Dwight Boyd and Richard Sobray, uh, Dwight Boyd was the head of an engineering firm and Richard Sobray headed up an architectural firm and they decided to merge and create a company that they called Boyd Sobray Associates. And their mission at that time was really to uh, service healthcare clients to provide an integrated approach that was collaborative with architecture and engineering, which back then at that time, that wasn't done very often. And um, with success of that, they were able to grow into other markets. So more than just healthcare, they grew into discovery and learning. And eventually um, moving into a second generation of the firm, the name changed to BSA Design. Um, but after a little bit, after a little while under that name, uh, they really started to wonder what did what did we mean by design? Because the word design could mean so many different things. So in 2003, they modified the mission and the name to BSA Life Structures. So that's what we're known as today. And these life structures facilitate um, and support, enhance, and inspire healing, learning, and discovery. 
Um, so now we're kind of moving into this third generation. We've we've grown nationally. We've got six different offices. And just recently in 2017, we became 100% employee owned. Yeah, so our mission has always been to partner with our clients and be a national leader in healing, learning and discovery with the ultimate goal to improve lives. So um, we're, we're really excited about continuing that mission and, and being a part of this um, generation going forward. So you mentioned that BSA is uh, now completely employee owned. Um, give us a little more context on that and why that uh, also reflects y'all's mission as a company. For me, I think the employee owned component was really interesting because it really talks about empowerment and um, the idea of responsibility that they, they put on the employees. Um, and traditionally, we were a firm with stakeholders and um, succession planning was something that they were looking at. And um, they thought that going to an employee owned environment was something that our culture already was well suited for anyway. And um, it's really become a culture of empowerment and it allows us to do our best work for our clients. So I, I've really enjoyed that transition. Love it. All right, let's get into a little more information about y'all's background and how that influences today's conversation. So we'll start with Jen. Uh, Jen, you have a unique blend of backgrounds in interior design, architecture, and psychology, which informs a lot of the research that you do during a design project. Can you break down a little bit more uh, what those three different backgrounds look like for you and how they influence your projects? Sure. Um, so my first love was psychology. Um, I was very interested in why people do what they do, right? Like everyone else, I feel like sometimes. Um, and when I got out of my undergrad, I started in social work with clients with disabilities or traumatic brain injury. And my job daily, I, I noticed people really struggling to traverse the landscape of the built environment um, as we know it. So um, as I was preparing to go back to graduate school for counseling, um, I thought, you know, there's got to be a better way. Uh, personally, I struggled a bit with the social work in terms of being able to let go of, of the people at the end of the day. So um, I thought, is there another way I can help? And I started architecture and design classes. It's something I always liked, but I never thought to pursue it. And um, so that's how I ended up having the, the three different backgrounds. I have always felt the need to um, help people with the way I do work. Um, and I want it to be a part of my daily life. And I've always believed that space can help support behavior and it can make people feel safer. It can make people feel um, stressed. And so for me, being able to now use that psychology background and help really um, determine how our design interventions correlate with positive outcomes for the patient is really rewarding. I very much enjoy what I do every day. And, um, you know, it's been interesting, the kind of the progression looking at the concepts of psychology and um, social work and seeing those things play out in real life and um, really starting to to understand and appreciate how physical space does enhance or impede a person's ability to thrive with the, within the built environment. 
Yeah, I think that's something that's so great about the industry that we're in and, and something that a lot of people don't really even understand or realize that um, design can have such an impact on the people that inhabit the spaces and uh, being able to work in the healthcare design market. I think it's really, um, it's great to be able to influence people, like you said, Jen, uh, with your background in psychology, um, you know, just having that impact while also doing design. Yes, it's very interesting. I've, I really feel very lucky that I'm able to kind of pull the different things in my background together um, and use them. So been very, very happy with that. Jen, if we hone in uh, even more to just treatment spaces, which is going to um, carry much of our conversation on the podcast today, why are all three of those different groups of influence, interior design, architecture, and psychology, useful in helping design the treatment spaces that you work on? Yeah, so I was always really interested in social psychology. And that's really the behavior of an individual in a group. And if we think about the way space can support an individual's behavior, um, it really goes to the individual's willingness to um, explore the environment as it's built. Um, so I've always been just interested in how that physical space can support behaviors that encourage positive interactions and outcomes. So I think a big thing that I learned along the path of psychology and then with um, social work was empathy. So I always try to step into the shoes of the end user and look at the design from a more personal res uh, perspective. And, you know, architecture and design has a responsibility to do no harm. So we are required to do design that helps people and not impedes people. And, and if you're not paying attention, you can accidentally design something that may not support a positive um, outcome within a space. So um, I think that getting that architectural background and the way that I ended up in, in healthcare design was because of all the things I went through with um, my social work background. But it's just so very important for people to have a safe space to um, heal in. And, and that's how I've used all those backgrounds together. The architecture you know, part was more about um, big picture building types and things like that, where the interior design part is more about how you live within that space and designing the, the spatial components within the interior. And that's just where I ended up um, because I liked how um, people live within the building. Um, and we spend so much time inside the interior environment. And that's how I ended up focusing on interior design, um, really more than architecture itself. Yeah, at DSA, it is really integrated, though. We uh, work hand in hand with the architects and it's it's not just, um, you know, applying finishes to the space that they design, but it's uh, built interior architecture that we do. So I could see that you use that aspect in your day to day as well, Jen. Yes, yes, it's been that's been a really wonderful thing about BSA is that we are very integrated and also the the fact that we have studios across um, the country has been really great. Um, for example, Karen is in Raleigh and I'm in Indianapolis. So, and we work together fairly often and it's really nice to, to be able to have that open environment across teams as well. Karen, let's turn to your background now. Uh, when you're involved in the design process, your main focus usually lands on the human experience within each interior. At least that's uh, one of the main motivating factors behind your designs. How would you define what influences the human experience of a space? And have you found that the human experience is uh, incredibly important for the different spaces that you work on? Give us your context there. 
Yes, definitely. Um, you know, similar to Jen's background, I don't have a uh, psychology, but, um, you know, it's very related to the human experience and how, how we feel within the space. Um, and can we create a space that is going to help us heal and um, help us work within an environment to um, be better support for those that are healing? So, one thing that we try and do is really listen and work with the people that are going to be in the space and figure out exactly what they need in order for it to be a successful project and, and a successful space so um, on some of the the infusion spaces that we've worked on we've had the great opportunity of meeting with patient and family advisory committees and being able to talk to them about their experience um, in a former space or what they could see being improvements on a space that they're going to move into um, because we haven't gone through all of these experiences ourselves so we need firsthand um, context to be able to create a solution that's going to be tailored specific to them. So it isn't, um, you know, one size fits all. Every project is different. But um, the more that we can talk to the people that are going to inhabit the space, um, the more we understand that that human connection and uh, what is going to be the solution that helps them the most. Yeah, Karen, that's an important point. Um, we Community focus groups are really important to the work that we do as healthcare designers. And I see that driving um, a lot of what we're doing um, in the past, but even more recently, I feel like it's becoming even more common for facilities to have their own advisory group and to encourage the community at large to, um, to come in and comment about um, different things around patient care which is a very rewarding experience, I think, for, for both of us, Karen, because we were really focused on, on the people aspect of things. Let's hone in specifically on treatment spaces for you as well, Karen. Uh, if you had to apply this all to designing a treatment space in healthcare setting, why would you say the human experience is um, especially important there as well? Yeah, so, um, you know, as I mentioned, that infusion space, it's where patients are going to be for a while. And I've had the opportunity on working on a, a handful of cancer centers and, and trying to understand what the patients are going through during their time there. So, um, you know, they're scared. They it's all new for them. So it's we find a tailored approach um, because different patients are going to react differently. So we oftentimes try to provide different options for them within a treatment space um, because some of them are going to want to be more alone. They're going to want some privacy while others really want to um, you know, be there with the others that are going through the same thing that they are. So they might want to lean on them for more support. So just being able to understand uh, the clientele, the, the the staff that's going to be within that space, and also the patients and understand what their specific needs are um, is, is more important in treatment spaces than um, others, I believe. And, and that goes into the, you know, in addition to looking at the, the client needs and wants and, and focus groups, you know, we look to the research around that as well. So what are the latest and greatest research trends um, and literature reviews and, and that helps guide us as well um, on, on how to treat those patient care spaces. So trying to learn from the past and from research at large in addition to our specific clients. 
All right, let's get deeper into how y'all's experiences impact BSA Life Structure's approach to designing treatment spaces. So you have a whole team within BSA called Life Structure's Metrics, and this team tracks critical data that's informing today's various modes of design. Can y'all give us some context on the kind of data being collected here by your team and how it helps inform your design strategies, especially for treatment spaces? Sure, yeah. So it all goes back to our mission, right, of um, improving lives, and that's always been a driver for BSA. And we're really um, historically strong in our planning department. So on staff, we have operational planners who are usually nurses. So um, they're a huge link for us when it comes to talking with uh, clients and user teams and, and helping, helping us understand the right questions to ask in meetings. Um, and then we also have master planners and facilities planners that um, over time have, have managed space data. So the life structures metrics really kind of grew out of that planning department, but it's expanded over time to include architects, designers, and engineers all coming together to create those impactful treatment spaces. So, you know, the why we do that is because our clients want and expect greater certainty, and, and we can't do just good design without measuring it and, and holding ourselves accountable to a higher standard. So um, way back when, um, we worked on a hospital in St. Joseph, Michigan called Lakeland. And um, that's really where the whole life structures metrics started. It was a hospital um, with various treatment spaces and um, they captured around 70 metrics, which is a very, very lot for a uh, project. So um, facilities metrics around travel distances, staff support space, um, the costs, of course, operational metrics around length of stay and safety. And then um, this, the things that get more close to the patient around you know, patient and family satisfaction metrics. So Prescani scores, things around noise, lighting, and user satisfaction um, is, you know, for example, with the noise, is a patient able to sleep at night in their patient room? Or um, are they feeling like they have the right lighting and have control over lighting in there? treatment space for infusion. So that's really how it all started. And um, with, you know, we couldn't capture 70 metrics on all projects. So um, that eventually translated over into the metrics program we have today, which is a little more focused. Um, and it, it leads into this idea um, of continuous improvement and um, you know learning from all of our projects one thing we try to do is to keep a strong feedback loop within our own organization because there's so much knowledge especially with our operational planners who who have been in the nursing environment um, and it's just such valuable information and we try to get that out to the team at large um, as best we can so it's been really interesting i think our design um, intervention spaces, treatment spaces are better because of the background um, of metrics that we've had historically. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think it, it's become integral into our culture now. Um, just again, as you mentioned, that idea of continuous improvement, but uh, we've got projects, you know, dating back from the 70s, as we mentioned, and um, a lot of, of metrics that we can really look back at and uh, be able to use when we start new projects. So 
definitely been helpful as we um, are moving forward. I also want to hear a little bit about um, how y'all step-by-step approach designing your treatment spaces. So when you're both designing a treatment space, what are the key design metrics that are most common or most often influence a treatment space project? Yeah. So, you know, we have this historical background that we just talked about with with Lakeland, which is really planning-based metrics. So that's kind of one bucket. Um, we are working on some standardized metrics modules, which we're, we're calling metrics that matter, that are based in the quadruple aim, um, also never events, and then uh, metrics that are already captured by health systems to help um, with the initiatives that they're working on already. And those things are around falls, healthcare acquired infections, errors, staff satisfaction and burnout, which is something that's um, becoming a huge issue today. Because I think the, the if you think of the caregiver as, as the staff person, that's very relevant these days. Patient visit cycle and population health. So how, what is um, healthcare's responsibility back to the community it, it lives in, in terms of making it healthier? Um, so we have the standard bucket of metrics, which are more, um, they're rooted in operational planning, but we're trying to link them to design interventions in the real world in, in treatment spaces. So, um, for example, with, uh, the staff burnout, one of the things that we've heard from our operational planners is, you know, treatment spaces are hard. If you're a, a nurse working in a, um, infusion area, um, you see the same people every day, and if something goes wrong, which is is awful, um, they go cry in the bathroom. They don't have a, they don't have a place to go. There's not, you know, if they don't have a a respite nearby, that's where they end up going. And we need to do better by them. So making sure that our projects have break areas that are close by where they do their work. Um, so measuring those distances off of a floor plan, making sure that there's daylight in those break respite areas. You know, um, we always try to get daylight into the care team station when that's possible. Um, and the care team layout itself, making sure it supports inter- interdisciplinary, sorry, interdisciplinary team interaction um, so that they have that social support network, network of their teams around them and they do not feel isolated. Um, so that's something we're looking at. And then the other one is kind of a a mixed bag of things. We call them opportunity metrics, and they're more project specific. And these are coming out during our um, visioning and alignment sessions. So um, alignment session is really an exercise we do with the client, and it's interdisciplinary with all of our um, disciplines and then with the client um, team as well. So we're trying to reduce the gap between what's known and unknown about the project and get everybody on the same page. So um, we do some things called value definition exercises, which are born out of the lean process improvement world. Um, We are also looking to create those opportunity metrics that are specific to a project. So for example, if a, um, a nurse might feel um, have low satisfaction trying to get to the root of what the root cause analysis of what that satisfaction um, is about. So, um, you know, it's really, it's really very interesting because like, there's so many different ways you can look at it. So we've tried to put it in a few different buckets for organizational purposes. 
Um, and I think for me personally, I'm most excited about the, the opportunity metrics that are specific to the client that kind of evolve with each and every project. And I know, Karen, you've had some opportunities to set some really good examples of those um, opportunity metrics. Do you want to share an example um, from the project you worked on? Yes. Yeah, so there was a, a cancer center that we recently um, completed the design for. And as Jen mentioned, we uh, did an alignment session with them to really figure out what their goals were and then boil that down into how are we going to achieve that goal, uh, one of which was creating a healthy environment. They wanted to encourage healthy culture and they wanted the interior of the space to um, be as healthy as it possibly can. So one thing we did with the interior design was looked at what materials we were proposing within the space and how can we reduce toxic materials and um, VOCs within the air. So VOCs are volatile organic compounds and um, it's just things within the air that might give us headaches or might um, disturb someone that has asthma and they're just not very healthy for the for the human. Um, so we were able to take that and um, apply it to the finished standards that we did with throughout the space and propose finishes that, you know, didn't have as much vinyl in it and uh, we're going to be healthier for the interior and the environment. So that is something we could eventually go back and look at um, and and measure and be able to apply a metric to it. But um, the project's currently in construction. So we'll see how, how that ends up working out. But um, it was definitely an opportunity that we took and, and we ran with on that project. Yeah. And it, from what I understand, Karen, the client really, really appreciated those specific things to them. And one thing that we do with those um, guiding principles, they really become our data line for decision making throughout the life of the project. So when it comes down to taking money out of a project, you know, the whole team, including the client, goes back and looks at those guiding principles and said, is this decision going to support or inhibit that, that you know, big project goal that we have? So we find them really useful um, as we go through. And then you can also use them to measure the success of the project at the end. As technology continues to power uh, more opportunities for designers to gather and analyze robust sets of data, it sort of creates a good problem in that there is, you know, more data to work with. So with all of the available data and metrics that can influence a design project, how do you approach identifying the relevant metrics per project to really make it specific to the client and end user's needs? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that can be tough. But like we said, the... the uh, Lakeland project had 70 metrics on it, and that's just not feasible to do on every project. So we're looking for each market to create a set of metrics that matter um, based on um, the market-driven approach. And, and like we said earlier, the, the healthcare driver for that is really the quadruple aim. So we're using that as a, a guiding force. We're also using our historical background of our um, benchmark data that we have from past projects. And then um, really through discovery and the alignment session, that's where we get into the more specific things around um, treatment spaces or care team stations and things like that that get that drill down into that more specific project um, metric. So there, there are different, sorry, there are a few different layers, layers to that. 
but um, every project gets an alignment session and that's really where those specialized metrics are born from in a, in a session. Yeah, I would agree with that. It's, um, it's, it's client specific and it's project specific. So that helps us in the beginning to understand what their specific goals are, and that will help us to narrow down which metrics that we are going to um, start to measure on that project because there, there could be a plethora of them. So that helps us really hone in on what are the goals we are trying to accomplish with this particular project. All right, Jen Worley, Karen Tobin, thanks so much for your thoughts so far on this episode of Champions of Care, a Champion Share podcast. We'll be back soon with part two of this conversation. So for our listening audience, don't go anywhere. Hit subscribe and make sure you keep an eye out for that next half of this conversation as Jen and Karen continue giving us their design perspectives and how they're being applied to treatment spaces across various healthcare organizations. Thanks again for listening so far and make sure that you're going to our website and subscribing to the Champions of Care podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B, and we'll catch you next time.